Hello there. Welcome to Existential. Um, I am introducing this particular episode with some, some transparency. Two of the five people that live in my home have had bouts where we've wrestled with anxiety or depression or both. This episode where I talk to a friend of mine who is a mental health professional is one that dives into this issue of mental health. And I say off the top that it's close to home for me so that anyone listening doesn't feel like you have this stigma attached to you, like you're the only one, like it's strange or weird or what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? None of that stuff is true. Sorry, somebody's texting me. Let me turn that on, on silent. I'm doing a podcast here, people. Anyway, none of that is true. Um, if you are listening to this and you've ever dealt with anxiety or depression, this will be an episode that hopefully is helpful for you. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're a faith leader or a person who leads anyone, a family, a church, an organization, it'll, it'll be good for you to hear some of the insights from my good friend that I talked to in this episode. So without further ado, welcome to episode nine of Existential. <laughs> This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Well, what's up, folks? Today on the podcast, I have my friend, Danny Fitch, and Danny is a wife and a therapist. Uh, she works in the mental health industry, and she's brilliant. She travels around the Bay Area and speaks about issues of mental health and faith. So I thought, man, I'd love to have her on the podcast. Just talk to all of us about mental health because some of y'all out there might have some mental health issues, <laughs> you know, like that you don't know about. So we uh, we definitely want to talk about that today, and I'm so glad that she is here. Danny, why don't you just say hello and tell the people something interesting about yourself? I know. I mean, I'm putting you on the spot. So yeah. Oh my gosh. On the spot to become very interesting. Um, well, (laughs) thank you so much for having me. I, I'm such a big fan of what you do. So I appreciate you trusting me enough to come on here and share, um, something interesting. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I, that I've never felt so much pressure to be interesting in my life. And I'm going to think of like 10 things as soon as we get off the phone. I know, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, maybe maybe we'll circle back to me on what's interesting about me. Well, I guess we'll have to. I mean, that wasn't in the show notes, you know, and I'll, I'll put you on the spot. Like someone asks you, hey, tell me something interesting about you. I mean, only a narcissist could do that like off the top of their head. Oh, okay, then I know? feel a little bit I mean, better. All right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could probably do it because I would think something was interesting and then I, I would probably think there was something wrong with you if you didn't. But, you know, that's <laughs> more about me than it's about you. So, but how, how long have you been working in the mental health industry? Let's see. I, ooh, probably a little over eight years at this point, almost nine. Yeah. I've been at a amazing counseling center for the past seven years, CPC counseling here in the East Bay. Um, and before that I worked at a school for a little bit doing school counseling, but basically the bulk of my experience has been at the counseling center. What made you want to do this type of work? I mean, I know that it's, it is, uh, like you hear some some really sad stories, some really dark stories. Like what made you decide that you wanted to do that for a living? 
Oh my gosh. Do you have 17 hours? Um, <laughs> the, I would say the cliff notes version of why I became a therapist is I lived a really different life and I had a really, really broken, um, traumatic upbringing. And I think that shaped me for the first half of my life in a really negative and a really dark way. And around the time of college, I originally wanted to be a writer. And so I was studying history and two people, a professor and my brother, both pointed out that every time I sat down to write, the one thing that I was always doing was I was always trying to answer the question, why? Mm. Why do people do what they do? Why do people hurt the way they hurt? And it kind of became this, you know, mind blowing question that I had never really realized. And, um, around that time I had started therapy myself for the first time I was in my twenties and it was the first time I had started to unpack all of my trauma. And it was the first time anyone had named for me things like depression and PTSD. And those two things combined, it was kind of this mind explosion of, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing what this woman is doing for me, which is helping somebody tell their story and find healing. And I wanted to believe that out of my own trauma and out of my own darkness, that there had to be a reason I went through this. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, uh, uh, full disclosure, I have a therapist that I see on, on a regular basis. And one of the things that they said to me recently was that people who get involved in like, whether it's ministry or, um, some sort of public service, but certainly like, you know, if you're involved in helping people directly like a therapist or like a pastor that like you get into that because of your own pain, usually like, do you, like, do you, you find that that in your, a lot of your colleagues, do they have similar stories of trauma and pain that like made them decide I want to use this pain to help other people? Yeah, I would say the majority of the people I talk to have some sort of story. I mean, to be honest, we all have a story, but, you know, I meet quite a handful of people that they really just got into it because they feel like I'm a good listener and I I feel like everyone always comes to me with things. Mm. Um, and there's actually, so I feel like it's kind of split down the middle of the people that I've talked to where some people just feel like I would be really good at this. And then there's this other percentage, probably where I fall into the other half, which is my own story, my own trauma kind of led me to this place where it was more of a, there's nothing else I should be doing but this. Wow. wow. So what, what is, what is uh, one thing that you'd say we outside of the mental health industry don't know or take seriously enough about our own mental health or about the mental health, you know, of society? Like what, what's something that you think, man, you, we should all really know this thing. Yeah. Oh, such a good question. Um, The first thing that comes to mind for me when I hear that is probably the misunderstanding and the misdiagnosing of what mental health is. Mm. And, and so that kind of lands on, on two ends of the spectrum. So first I'd say something that we don't understand is even just in many ways, a very basic understanding of things like anxiety and depression. It's amazing how much people think they know what those things are. And then I'll go and I'll give these talks and I'll unpack these issues And they realize, man, I've had such a surface level view of what something like anxiety is. So I'll hear people throw words around and diagnoses around that. I'm like, do you really know what you're saying right now? I'll, you know, people will be very flippant and use the words, I have an anxiety disorder. And when you unpack it with them, it's really just that they have a lot of stress in their life and they're in a stressful season. 
and they just don't really have the coping skills and they don't have the verbiage around it, but they write it off quickly as I have anxiety and they'll go to the doctor, they'll get a prescription to get an anti-anxiety. And it's not until they actually sit in the therapy room and we unpack it and realize like, no, we just need to give you some really great coping skills for stress. So I think a lot of misunderstanding of what mental health is, I think can get people into a lot of trouble. Um, But I'd say also on the other side of that is also the misdiagnosing. And that's something that a lot of people don't take seriously. So almost in the complete opposite direction, we have people who don't really recognize their own anxiety or depression. They don't have anybody coming alongside of them and saying, hey, what you just experienced was trauma. And that is something that needs to be talked about. It needs to be dealt with. I'll have parents who have teenagers who have like deep depression and they'll write it off as they're just being a teenager and they're just being dramatic. Or I have parents that will send their kids to therapy and they don't ever take the time to look at their own mental health. And I'll have conversations with parents where I'm in my head, I'm going, oh my gosh, this person has PTSD and they've never taken the time to really name that for themselves. So I think either misdiagnosing and misunderstanding is something that not a lot of people outside of, I'd say, the therapy yeah. world really take seriously. Well, up until a couple of years ago, because you, you've used this term a couple of times now, PTSD, it was a term that I only associated with people who had been engaged in some sort of warfa- warfare or some been, ex- part, yeah. been around some sort of really violent environment. But you're saying now that PTSD is something that, like, everyday people can experience for a number of different reasons. Like, could you talk more about, about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, trauma is one of those things that a lot of people I think don't fully understand. And so the best way I can explain is trauma often breaks down into two different types. So what you just described is what you very classically think of as trauma. And so we describe that as big T Mm -hmm. trauma. Big T trauma is something that very much threatens our physical well-being. So a lot of veterans experience PTSD. Um, If you've ever experienced any sort of violence, uh, sexual assault victims, if you've been in a car accident, or if even you've been just a witness to something violent, those are all big T trauma. And big T trauma is something that you can look at and point to and say, that was definitely trauma, right? Little T trauma, on the other hand, is so much harder to catch It's so much harder for people to recognize, and therefore it oftentimes can be the most damaging because we don't know to look for it. And little t trauma are things that much more threaten our emotional well-being. So, I mean, I'll just just be totally vulnerable and use myself as an example. I, I grew up in a very emotionally abusive home. Now, on the surface, you would never know that I was experiencing trauma on a daily basis because I didn't walk around with my arm in a cast. So I didn't have any physical wounding. But when you grew up in a home where every day there is verbal abuse, when someone is letting you know that you were not loved, that you were not wanted, or when there's um, a lack of love and affirmation, if there's a lot of, we, we um, had so many money issues that we moved and lost our home so many times, all of those things are little T trauma, kind of just this underlying constant daily trauma that on the surface, most people would miss, but absolutely start to eat away at you. And sometimes we say in therapy that those can actually be the most 
damaging types of trauma because it can go for years without people even recognizing it and it eats wow. away at your soul. So like stuff like, so like military families, ministry families, I mean, full disclosure, my family has moved around quite a bit. And you're, so those types of moves are um, for children can be little T trauma. Yeah, for and, them. and obviously I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say, oh my gosh, if, if you've moved right. more than twice, you're traumatizing your child. <laughs> <laughs> your kids need to see I'm, me right now. You're about to get some angry letters from a lot of other therapists right now. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Cancel the moving truck right now. We're not going anywhere. Yeah, let me let me clarify. <laughs> um, no, that doesn't automatically mean that that's trauma, but to in a very broad sense answer your question. Yes, it absolutely can be traumatizing because even think about it as a kid, our stages of development are so imperative for a child's brain development and their growth. And so for a kid, one of the things that they they need in order to thrive and to grow in a healthy way, especially their brain, is consistency and structure. So if you're in like for me, during the very pivotal stages of development, my dad would constantly either be disappearing or he, I would wake up one day and he'd be gone. I'd come home and our house would be for sale. I'd come home and my mom would be in one of her rages. So for a kid, when you come home and something is that different and that terrifying, sudden changes like that absolutely can change the brain pattern. And what happens is your brain starts to get stuck in your fight or flight response. And so you're becoming very hypervigilant all the time because you're just waiting for the next thing to happen. Dang. That, so, I mean, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And the reason I, I wanted to have it, other than the fact that I just think you're brilliant and, and anytime we talk, I love hearing the stuff that you're saying, is that whenever there is a mass shooting mm-hmm. that happens, there's like this... Um, argument being had. It's like, we need to deal with guns. No, we need to deal with mental health. And it's this tug of, war, tug of war that happens. And I just wanted to ask you about that and a couple other things where mental health comes into play. But like, where do you fall? And I'm not trying to ask you to get like super political about, you know, let's take people's guns away or not take people's guns away. But when you hear that happening in public, public discourse, as a mental health professional, how do you hear that argument? Yeah, I will right off the bat say I am no gun expert. And so I <laughs> have, I speak with very little authority on that. So <laughs> I hope everyone that's listening does not think that I am going to take what I say with a grain of salt about guns. But, right. but absolutely, I'm glad you asked it as like, what do I hear essentially as a mental health? Like, where does my brain go? And for me, my yeah. brain always goes to that that question of, man, what is that person's story that got them to that place where they felt like this was my only option? And while I know very wow. little about, about guns and about laws, um, the one thing that I will say is putting a gun in somebody's hand doesn't automatically make them a killer. If this person wants to find a way to hurt, they will find a way to hurt. So I think it's it's too easy to demonize things like guns and say it's because of guns that we have mass shooting. But that being said, I I could not discount the fact that guns have absolutely been used <laughs> to hurt people. Right. So we would be very right. naive and foolish to not look at, okay, what do we need to look into in terms of 
gun control and reform. And again, I'm, I'm not the person that knows anything about <laughs> laws, but I absolutely am someone that says we should be looking at all avenues, not just one. Um, I think where my brain ends up very much fixating, though, is the hardest thing about trying to understand somebody like a mass shooter is that oftentimes they end up killing themselves in the end or they get killed in the end. So it's hard for us to really understand them and talk to them. Um, so we can only make a lot of educated guesses. But one of the things that you will see across the board is most of them experienced a couple things. And my brain always goes, I wonder what trauma they must have experienced in their life. Because oftentimes things like abuse, whether it's sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse, can over years have an impact on a person where they become much more isolated and much more marginalized. I think, mm. man, what was the resources that they did not have potentially? Who did not see the signs early enough? Um, did they not see the signs in themselves? But then there's other people that maybe it has nothing to do with past trauma, but more over and over and over again, they experienced loss or disappointment in their life, right? Mm. And they feel yeah. like they got pushed to the brink. For other people, it might simply just be that their brain chemistry is just not working the way they should, and they're not getting the help that they need, or they're not doing what's called, um, oh my gosh, my mind just went blank, but it's when you're not actually staying on top of things like your medication and okay. therapy. So that to be said, there are so many reasons why my brain goes, why this person might've done what they did. And I think it's just too easy to just say it's either guns or mental health. I think we too much yeah. as a society get very divisive and we want to stand in a camp and say it's this or it's that. And I think we don't take enough time to ever talk about the both and. Which is, For sure. also, which is also why I go into churches and talk about this. But. Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask an, a completely awkward question, okay? And, and I think because I'm really interested in this, um, I, I saw a meme that went around, I saw a meme that went around the last time there was a mass shooting mm -hmm. um, that said it was a picture of Betty White. Mm -hmm. And it took me a second to get it. But what the meme was saying is, I bet the shooter was white, which led mm. me to whole conversation mm -hmm. about like, okay, why is it that we see so many of these mass shooters with mental health issues being white men? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm not looking at data in front of me, but that, that is certainly right. a, an idea or a, a um, perception that we have in our heads because when we see pictures of mass shooters, certainly lately, they've been white dudes. Is there anything that you've seen in like your counseling or in your research or anything like that, like could speak to why that's the case. Is that actually the case or is that just perception? Like, do you, do you have any thoughts on that at all? You don't have to be an expert on that. I'm just asking yeah. you as a mental health professional, like why is it that it seems like that it's always a white man that's committing these, these crimes? Yeah. You know what? And uh, yeah, definitely not an expert, but I could take an educated guess just from the research that I have done and just from what I know about, you know, mental health to a degree. Um, and you're absolutely right. If you look statistically, it's white males and usually between the ages of like 25 and 40, um, you're never really going to hear of um, a Hispanic or an African-American shooter. And 
my where my brain where yeah and where my and where my brain first goes is if I if I look at this through the lens of um through race Mm -hmm. and through mental health Mm -hmm. one thing that we do know is that statistically white males have the highest rates of uh things like I think it's major um like generalized anxiety or major depression whereas Mm -hmm. Black and, and Hispanics actually have higher rates of things like low-grade depression, so something called persistent depressive disorder. So white males, again, if I take an educated guess, yeah. and we we kind of go into this very stereotypical view of right. white males, I think in our society, what they thrive on is this idea of I need to know that I am important. I think there's this pride factor of I take care of my family. There's a sense of, especially look at the East Bay, that white males here, I think there is very often a almost tribe of white males that feel like success is what drives them. Mm. Success is what makes me who I am. And if you consider a man who has experienced setback after setback after setback, their whole identity is being stripped away from them. And Versus if you look at the reason why we see things like Hispanic or African-Americans who experience much more of that low-grade depression, that is something more along the lines of these are generational cycles of I have experienced basically living day-to-day in survival mode. And every day in survival mode is I wake up and I'm just trying to, for people who live in areas that are dangerous or maybe that have a lot of gangs, it's every day I just want to know, am I going to make it through the day? For a single, you know, my mom was a single Hispanic mom. It's how am I going to get food on the table for my kids? They don't have time to be thinking about going to therapy or recognizing their own depression, but it's almost just like their existence is kind of just this little black cloud of everyday survival, Mm -hmm. low-grade depression, Mm -hmm. whereas white males, if they're used to success and if they're used to being somebody that is looked at as successful, when those things are not happening, it feels like it's a much bigger fall from grace, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Well, thanks thanks for answering that. Like, for I know that, you know, in the world we live in today, that when you start talking about mental health or guns or white folks or black folks or Latinos or any of these topics that we talk about on existential all the time, that there is, there is going to be someone out there who's like, no. So we just like, it is what it is. You know, we just have to know that that, that is a thing, but thank you for for speaking to that. I think that makes a lot of sense and it certainly gives us all something to think about. Yeah. You know, something just as a side note too, that this will, potentially come up later in our conversation. I might keep coming back to this, but um, probably another thing too is, again, if I just look very stereotypically from from a a race standpoint, you know, I grew up in in a Hispanic household and I will tell you that one of the biggest difference between between a lot of white culture and a lot of other cultures is this idea of tribe. Mm. And I see, especially within white culture, it's a lot about individuation and it's a lot about being your own person. Whereas if you grow up, I don't know about you, but like I growing up in Hispanic family, it's all about family and it's, it's very tribal and it's all about your neighborhood and your community. And so it's, it's not about, and when, when your kind of your community is all about being part of a tribe and being part of a community, you don't tend to want to hurt your tribe. Mm. 
versus in white culture where it's we much more are all about individuation it's easier i think to hurt people that not are not a part of your community and not a part of your tribe and i think the further that we get away from this tribal mentality of community and connection i mean sometimes i think that the reason why these mass shootings happen is because we have fallen so far from who we are supposed to be, which is we are built to be tribal and in connection and in community. And when there is a brokenness within the community, that is when you see somebody get more and more marginalized. And the more marginalized they become, the more they feel like they have no other options, as opposed to when our community has healing and is whole, and we are connected to those in our community, and we build people up and we bring in the sick and we love on them healthy communities don't experience Mm. this wow so so you're making a case for like a a positive to the idea of tribalism which i i'm fascinated by like i I want i want to keep talking about this because yeah when we talk about like race and reconciliation and and community and diversity and all of those things there is a a sense of let's all be one tribe um, which usually means that mm-hmm. the most powerful in that tribe expect the, everyone else to assimilate to their culture, their way of thinking, their way of being, which is what we see in America with whiteness. But what you're talking about in tribalism is fascinating. So could you just talk about that concept, like the, the idea of it being a positive that we maintain some sense of our tribe and community? Yeah. You know, there's um, a really great book that I definitely recommend uh, called Tribe, actually. And it's by Sebastian. Oh, my gosh. I think it's Junger. I always <laughs> mispronounce his name. So I, I deeply apologize. But it's J-U-N-G-E-R. He's either Junger he's or probably Younger. not listening, so we're fine. You know, no, no, one, no one cares. <laughs> I, if he is, I'm stoked out of my mind. Um, and I'm probably going to butcher everything. But anyways, um, one of the things that he talks about in this book, and it's something that in my little household of myself and my husband that we talk about a lot, is this idea that if you if you go back and you look at what original tribes were, the only way you survived was if you stayed a part of the community. If you wandered off by yourself, you literally are going to get either mauled by an animal or killed by a neighboring, yeah. you know, tribe. And so how you like survival was about staying within the tribe and everybody helped each other. If there was a need, the community helped. If there was somebody who came back. So if you look at statistically, he talks about how things like PTSD, you don't see in very tribal communities. So if you go over, I think it's like to Israel, and if you look at communities that live in um, a kibbutz, you know, there's very little PTSD they experience for a lot of reasons. Um, For one thing, you know, war is something that is on their front door. And so it's not like it's a shock to their system Mm -hmm. when things are happening. And it's easier for people to integrate back into their society as opposed to here. We're so separated from war that when somebody comes back from war here, what they experienced while they were in war was being part of a community and a tribe of their brothers and sisters in, in arms. Right. And then they come back to a society that's so, like disenfranchised almost and every man for themselves. And when you come back to a society after being part of a tribe and you realize I am on my own and I have nobody, 
versus back to your question of, you know, this idea of tribalism, it's the way that people survived was being part of a community and being connected and helping each other. And if somebody was acting up or getting violent, like the community wouldn't stand for that. That's just not wow. something that happened there. Like they would be on it Dang. like that. Right. And, and so when I say being part of a tribe, that's, that's what I'm talking about is are the more modern and the more advanced we become as a society, the more separated, isolated and disconnected. Dude. we also become. So, okay. I, Golly, that's so good. So there was I, once I came across a study um, that was looking at the use mm-hmm. of heroin on the street and the use of the same drug in the mm-hmm. hospital that they give you for pain. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea okay. that part of what leads to addiction and being strung out on drugs, opioids or whatever, uh, is a separation from community. Now, the like they were talking mm, and, and there was mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher this also there was like some experiment done on rats where one rat that was isolated that was taking the same drug as other rats that were in a a larger community had just completely different behaviors um so i just i love mm-hmm. that idea that like that there's something healing yeah. and good for our mental and emotional and spiritual health just being a part of a tribe or a community that cares about us Oh my gosh, I can't even tell you how important it is. I mean, one of the the first questions that we ask in therapy if someone's dealing with depression is I, I call it the five finger check, which is if you hold up your five fingers, the five things that we always right have them check is diet, exercise, sleep. <laughs> so diet, exercise, sleep, faith, because yeah. everybody has some sort For of sure. spirituality that helps them. And then community. And so one of the first questions we ask is, what does your community look like right now? Because something that will feed your depression or your mental health issues is isolation versus now I'm not saying that just by being in community, it heals all. But I will tell you that if you look statistically at somebody who is isolating when they have a mental health issue versus somebody who is constantly being plugged into community and connection, that alone I mean, everything from the brain chemistry and things that are happening to just the fact that you feel taken care of and loved. Wow. So one of the other things that is uh, always comes up with mental health is um, uh, it's relate the relationship between mental health and religion, and specifically to the Christian church in America. So um, over the last couple of years, we've had two very tragic situations where prominent um, you know, evangelical faith leaders took their own Mm -hmm. lives. And then we had this whole, you know, cycle again of people saying the church needs to take mental health more seriously. The church needs to take mental health more seriously. So what does that mean for the Christian church or any people of faith to take mental health seriously? Oh my gosh. Let me, let me stretch here because I got a lot to say. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I'm either about to make a lot of fans or a lot of enemies right now. So um, oh, that's, that makes for the best, the best okay, podcast. I'm, fi- I'm fixing my, fixing my ponytail. Do. I'm ready. Um, okay. <laughs> I, Take your earrings <laughs> off. Hold, hold my hoops, Corey. <laughs> um, if you're Mexican, you get that. Um, okay. So I, I, I'm so glad you asked this just because for for anyone that knows me knows that in the past year or two I've I've actually been going into churches that will 
let me, <laughs> that have invited me in to yeah. speak about essentially bridging the gap between mental health and the church. And so the first thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is you have to kind of look at historically why are the church and mental health on so such opposite sides, right? You would think that they would be very connected mm-hmm. because originally the For church sure. was a place where this, you know, the sick and wounded would go. They would bring in orphans and widows. Um, but unfortunately, right. historically, the church has handled mental health in one of three ways. Either they ignore it, which sends the message to the person, your problem is too much for us, and thereby that person wow. feels rejected. Or two, they refer to somebody else and kind of walk away from that person, which can leave the person mm-hmm. feeling very abandoned. Or three, right. they treat it exclusively as a spiritual issue. And the problem with that is essentially it sends the message, your faith is responsible for your problem. And it's also the only solution, which puts the person in this very awkward place of feeling like they suddenly have to choose between their faith and mental health. And if you think about that, I'll come back to the the question about, um, the pastors lately that have been, you know, taking their lives, but just to, to continue vamping on this, um, the big stigma that I have experienced, seen, and even done research on has been, if you think about it for the longest time, Christianity has focused mainly on our spiritual growth, which is potentially why historically the church has ignored kind of looking more at your mind, body, soul connection because we're so focused on our spiritual and our soul health, we ignore the mind body health. And because historically mental illness was seen as a sin, which all, all of this comes from ignorance and fear, but because mental mental illness was kind of put under this box of, it was probably sin based. Then essentially what that does is that person who's now experiencing a mental illness starts asking themselves the question of, do I just not have enough faith? If they're telling, if the first questions that people are experiencing in the church, if they go to a pastor with issues of mental health, oftentimes the first questions that they're asked is, what does your walk look like? What does your faith look like? Let's pray about it. You know, let's have you talk to a pastor about it. And again, I'm not trying to demonize those things because I think faith plays a massive part in our healing. But when, when you solely look at it through that spiritual lens, that person then starts to then question, Oh my gosh, if the solution is not found in scripture and nowhere in scripture, does it talk about going to see a mental health expert or taking antidepressants? Right. right? And if the solution is not found in scripture, but also if what is wrong in my brain is not found in the scripture, then it leaves you with the choice of either I choose Jesus or I choose therapy. And that is one of the most devastating places for anyone to have to be in, to feel like they have to choose between either saying, if I go see a therapist, is that essentially me saying that I don't trust God with my healing? You know, with the recent losses of the pastors that you were talking about, um, there was a, a one recently, he was in his 20s, and I'm so sorry I'm forgetting his name, but he was a huge advocate for mental health. He was very vocal. About- it was Jared Wilson. Jared Wilson, thank you. Um, you know, that one hit me hard. And it's yeah. amazing. We never know why certain stories are going to hit us 
in particular, but that one in particular, really, really, um, I had to sit with it for a few days and I, I knew nothing about him until I heard his story. But I think yeah. the reason why it hit me so hard was because I started to watch the backlash that the church was giving oh, yeah. about this person who was very vocal about his mental health issues. And, yeah. um, I think you and I even chatted a little bit about how we both saw some different pastors kind of kind of social and like social media coming out and almost yeah being very, um, it was gross. Yeah, it was, it was really horrible. And I even in some personal conversations with people in, in churches around here, very ignorant statements being made of, you know, how could he do that to his family? Or he obviously wow. didn't have enough faith if it got to that point. And as a Christian mm-hmm. and as a mental health expert, I cringed because yeah. it was like, oh my gosh, that's the problem right there. That is, that is why I try to go into churches and have these conversations because what I want to say is, look, we are all walking wounded. For sure. All of us. I mean, all of us are walking wounded and to, to label somebody as your depression was because you weren't strong enough or how dare you do that to your family shows such an ignorance of mental health. Um, and it's so damaging. And you and I have had this conversation so many times of just the damage that is done when the church, which is supposed to be a hospital for the sick, right? Right. When they're demonizing somebody with mental health out of ignorance, um, I've watched a lot of damage come out of that. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, because we, in faith spaces, we've not had any trouble with people going to the doctor for their diseases and getting treatment for their diseases. But for some reason, mental health has been this thing that's like, well, we can take care of that ourselves, even though we have no expertise. We we haven't been to school for it. We don't know what we're doing, but we can handle it because we, you know, we understand the Bible. And I think that's such a gross stance to take with Mm -hmm. people. And yeah, we did. We did talk about that. There were some Mm -hmm. pastors who said some stuff about Jared Wilson that had me had me on 10. I was so I was so yeah. mad. Julie, my wife, had to talk to me about like, hey, uh, maybe you should sleep on this before you say something. Because yeah. I would <laughs> golly, I was furious. I was furious about that. I am a hundred percent with you on that. Um, it took me a few days of wrestling with that and same thing, conversations with with Justin about why. I feel like there's such a need to do what I'm doing, which is essentially going into churches and sitting down with leaders and lay counselors and having real conversations about what mental health is, but more importantly, what your role is in ministry versus what your role should not be. And, you know, one of the things I, I have a love hate relationship with people in the church that, that do, you know, kind of like lay counseling is I love the fact that, in many ways, it's such an incredible service because they're kind of like the first responders of the church, which is they're on the front lines of when somebody in the church is hurting, it's good to know that there are people there that they can go to. But the problem is people like pastors or lay counselors are taking on roles that are bigger than they are, and they start to do mental health 
education and therapy with them and can often do a lot of damage in those moments because Mm. they have such a surface level view of these issues that they don't know to look for things like OCD or trauma or personality Mm. disorders, or they don't know the proper way to help them deal with things like depression and anxiety. But there's such a disconnect between the church and mental health that when it gets to that point, they just, they, they, just point to scripture or they just point to prayer instead of saying, Hey, let's reframe this as let's look at all avenues of how we can get you help. And if that means therapy, I will walk alongside of you and faith can be a part of your journey. It doesn't have to be this either or mentality. Right. For sure. For sure. The other thing that, um, switching gears a little bit, the other thing Mm -hmm. that comes up with mental health a lot is social media. And yeah. what social media is doing to our children, what social media is doing to all of us. How much of the social media is the devil stay off of it because it's making us crazy is real? And how much of it is like, you know, a little bit overblown or or is it not overblown at all? Man, social media is such a is such a hot button issue. And it's in uh, similar to you. It's a question that I get asked often in most talks that I go give, especially to parents, that's usually the first question they ask is let's talk about right. phones and social media. Right. And Should um, my kids be on Instagram. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> delete all of it. Um, no, here's, here's what I would say is like, like with most things, the answer is yes and no, <laughs> because right. things like social media have an amazing, um, are an amazing place to be able to have a platform for things like, look at what you get to do. I mean, you get to use things like social media as a platform to talk about social justice and to bring awareness to things that to create conversations with people. So it has, if it's harnessed correctly, social media can actually be a really incredible thing. But unfortunately I'd say the majority of what we see with social media is, is it does more damage than good oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And I think for a few reasons, I think, you know, back to that idea of you know, kind of like tribalism and becoming more modern, the more advanced we become, then the less need there is for personal connection. And oh, so yeah. things like social media literally put you in a position where human interaction is no longer needed. I no mm-hmm. longer need to confront somebody face to face when I have a conflict I no longer need to face somebody and actually have interpersonal relationship. I can do all of this from the safety of my bedroom with the door closed and a screen. And the more, and the more that I no longer need human interaction, a few things happen. First of all, I see this with a lot of teens and adolescents is they no longer have proper coping skills with life because they never actually have to face anything. And so when you don't have proper coping skills, when you suddenly do experience anxiety or depressive symptoms or hard moments in life, you are not equipped to deal with that. And so their go-to is they come to therapy overwhelmed because they don't even have the basic skills to understand how they think, how they feel, how to express those things, how to deal with people. So it very much stunts our emotional and mental growth in those ways. And I think the other thing that it does is it creates a world where I don't need people. And so it becomes easier for me to isolate. And the more isolated I become, then the more that things like mental health can breed, the more that I find it easier to look 
upon other groups of people that are different than me with contempt because I can just live in my safe little world where my social media is completely curated to everything I think and feel. Right. For sure. Yeah. And I, I really hate that, that social media has begun to do that. It's begun to really filter us in the direction of the things that they think we want and they think we want to see and think we want to hear. So we do wind up in these echo chambers, so to speak. Um, Although I haven't found my way into an echo chamber. There's still people that yell and scream at me on social media every single day, which (laughs) I'm, you know, I appreciate it. I mean, it's a dialogue's important and it it helps me know that I'm not just talking to a bunch of people who only agree with me because that's just, you know, there, there is, there is a space where I think it's important that we have people that we don't have to go back to, you know, to use racism as an example, to racism one-on-one to have to simply have a conversation. There is, it is a great idea to have spaces like that where everyone in the room is on the same page mostly but it's it's I, I agree it's not healthy to always only be in a space which curated to coddle your emotions and your feelings and your ideas and your racism your xenophobia your you know homophobia any of those things that that, that like get coddled by us being you know uh, herded into one space of thinking so yeah i totally agree with you on that i think that's i think that's really good i hope people are listening to that and if you do have kids um that are on social media uh, I mean, I mean, what do you do if you got kids? Do you like, do you limit their time? Do you like, um, you know, are you a no, don't let your kids on social media at all person? Or are you a, if you're going to do it, here are the boundaries person, or, or maybe you're both. I don't know. You know, I, this is going to be such a, a therapy answer to say right now. I think, I think, <laughs> I think to a degree though, it has to be, you know, a decision, a family has to come to their own, you know, decisions, their own rules for their family. But, but, you know, one thing that I, I do say is first and foremost, um, limiting that time, I think is imperative. I think it's, it's too easy and also too dangerous just to say no social media for a teenager. Now, what age they get social media, I think every parent should you know, make that decision. I think middle school is a really tricky time. Um, so if it, if it was up to me as a therapist, I'd say no social media in middle school simply because <laughs> of their brain development. But I also know by saying that you're essentially cutting them off from all of their connection. Like this is how kids connect. So if, yeah. if it's too, it's too much to say no social media, what I would say is two things. One, it's having really set clear guidelines of how much time is spent on there. And you guys as parents should be able to monitor what your kids are looking at and whatever they're into, you should be a part of. Um, And the other Mm -hmm. thing is ongoing conversations. I think too often we'll kind of set these rules for our kids and then we walk away and then not until there's a problem and we're doing damage control, do we step back in instead of there being ongoing conversations about things like, um, every time somebody posts a picture that is like evocative, like let's have a conversation about it. Like what made Mm -hmm. you feel the need to post that? Tell me a little bit about how you see yourself or teaching kids proper coping skills, proper ways of dealing with conflict. If this is an ongoing conversation of who you are as a person, helping them grow, but also teaching them responsible ways to, to handle their own social media, then I think that's, that's just a part of, you know, proper growth is having an ongoing conversation about those things. But I'm, I'm definitely a big believer in 
parents should not be afraid to monitor their kids' stuff, but be open and honest about it. Don't do it in secret. Let them know right out the gate, like, hey, I'm your parent. I'm paying for the phone, but also, <laughs> also my brain is bigger than yours. And so right. I'm going to monitor this stuff and we're going to have yeah. conversations about this. Yeah. That's the, you don't pay no bills in this house. And uh, because I'm grown <laughs> uh, answers to your kids about social media. One last question I have for you. Yeah. Um, should everybody have a therapist? Now I know that, you know, therapy is an expense. Um, mm-hmm. My wife and I have always been, strong advocates of therapy and said that, you know, if, if my car broke down, I would have no choice but to get it fixed. So the the expense, you know, thing we, that's how we've spoke to the, well, we can't afford it. We've gone, well, we can't afford not to, but that's us. Would you say that everyone should have a therapist? And if so, why, if not, why? Um, hmm. Should everybody have a therapist? You know, I, I, should, I don't want to, I don't want to shit on everybody, but yeah. I mean, that's not the best way to, to ask it, but I think that's you know okay. what I'm saying. Yeah, that's totally, that's something we say in therapy all the time is you're shitting all over yourself. <laughs> um, I, here's the thing is I might be a little biased because I've been in therapy, but I'm also, so I've been on both sides of the couch, so to speak. And uh-huh. what I will definitely say is that it never hurts to go see a therapist because even all of you out there that feel like well, I haven't experienced any big traumas, so I don't really have anything I need to process. I will tell you, it's amazing once you sit in that room and you start to just unpack your story or you just start reflecting on your life, how much you realize that we as as a people, I think, really, really, really struggle with things like self-reflection and self-awareness. And so where I see an absolute amazing need for everyone to be in therapy is if more people would take the time to sit in a room and learn how to become much more self-aware and self-reflective to understand Mm -hmm. how to recognize my thoughts, my feelings, how I react out of those thoughts, I would dare say your communication, your self-awareness might get better, your self-insight, your relationships. So for that, I I actually am a a massive believer in everyone should experience therapy at least once. not to say that if you haven't experienced therapy, that you are somehow more broken you're as a failing, person. You're not failing at, at life. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. But, yeah. um, but I, I absolutely, I would fall more into the camp of man. It, it would be such an incredible thing if everyone could experience that type of self-reflection and insight at least once in their life. So dope. Danny, thanks so much for coming on. It, this mm-hmm. has been such a great conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it, learned a lot. Just really appreciate you and appreciate what you do. Uh, thanks for coming on today. Is there anything you'd say in closing that like anything you want, any any parting thoughts you want to share with the whole world? Because the whole world is listening to Existential. Yeah. <laughs> the whole world, yes. The whole world. I'm a, I'm a very important person. Um, <laughs> I'd say the the last thing that I would I would want to just leave with is this idea that something that I, I talk a lot about in in the places that I go have conversation is taking time to actually do that self reflection is so imperative and I don't think enough of enough of us actually do that and in a recent conversation I had um, with my husband he was actually chatting with a friend over social media who started just like opening up about different areas of his life that he was struggling and the one thing that I mentioned to him was 
every single one of us has one thing in common, which is all of us deeply need to feel like we matter in this world, that we have Mm. purpose. Mm. All of us need to feel connection and to feel like I am somebody worthy of love, right? Like these are, these are our base, our base needs as a human being, no matter who you are, race, religion, anything. And if I can encourage everyone out there to just even start by just sitting with that thought of what in my life brings me fulfillment. And for like this person, he had all the fulfillment from a business and money standpoint, but his relationship life was very absent. And the one thing I mentioned was if you look at it through this question of if all of these things in my life were to go away, if, if I looked at all of them as distractions and they were to go away, what would I have to face within myself? Wow. So sitting, I just really want to encourage people to just sit with that question and just reflect. Um, I definitely, I encourage people to, to look at things like their core beliefs. So, so deep. So yeah, do that now. What a way to end the (laughs) podcast with a bang. Danny, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Well, that's it for that conversation. Danny, thanks so much for coming on. I'm, gosh, so, so thankful for your voice and for the insights that you shared with us. Listen, I want to say to any of you who listen to this, that as I said in the beginning, you may struggle with or wrestle with any sort of mental health, depression, anxiety, PTSD, whatever it might be. Um, If you have not gone to see a professional, I would encourage you to do so. Listen, don't try to white knuckle the issues in your life that feel like they're overwhelming to you before it's gotten out of control or to at a place where it's just so massive of a load that you're carrying emotionally. It's better that you go see someone prematurely, that you go see a therapist, even if you don't need to, if you think you might be dealing with any of these issues, it'd be good for you to go see someone before they get out of control. I'd like to thank uh, you for listening Thank you for being a part of these conversations that we're having, happening, that we're having. If you've not yet subscribed to Existential, you can do so today. If you've never left a review or rated the podcast, you can also do that today. Make sure you check out the show notes so you can stay in touch with us. I'd like to thank Comfort Fit for the music. The song is called Sorry. And I am once again going to say to you the thing that I say at the end of every single podcast because it matters deeply to me and hopefully it matters deeply to you. But thank you for contending for a better world with us, one conversation at a time. Yeah.